You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please join with me in turning to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, and tonight we are looking at verses 9 through 14, Matthew 12. And we begin reading at verse 9. Matthew writes, And departing from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. But going out, the Pharisees took counsel together against him as to how they might destroy him. Let's ask our God's blessing on the preaching of His Word. Father in heaven, do help me tonight to declare Your truth. Lord, may we know Your strength, an ability that's not explained apart from You in this next hour. Lord, would You help the preacher and help the listener so that Your Word goes deep into our hearts and produces good fruit. Thank You for my brothers and sisters. Lord, encourage them tonight. Strengthen them. Build them up in their holy faith. Protect them through the ongoing study of your word. Grant them joy. Grant them, Lord, peace, even as we've sung about just a moment ago, and comfort in the areas where they're struggling or hurting. Correct us, Lord, where we've gone astray in any respect, and Lord, set our feet on the pathway of truth, the only safe pathway there is. We do pray for those hearing me tonight who don't know you, and we ask for salvation. We thank you for the many that we have seen saved this year, and Lord, we just ask for that to continue, that you would continue to save sinners, that you would bring more and more people into the family of God, into the church of Christ. Lord, we will give you praise and thanks for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. To read Scripture rightly, you have to know the author. There is no right reading of the Word of God without knowledge of the author. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person... What is a natural person? It's a person since the fall of Adam, as they are born into the world. Anyone born of man since the fall, as you were born into the world, that's the natural condition. Anyone who is not regenerate, anyone who has not experienced the new birth, that's a natural person. And the Bible says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They are spiritually discerned. 
To understand the Word of God requires something in the spiritual realm that the natural man does not possess. To understand the Word of God requires the Spirit of God, the author of Scripture, whom the natural man does not possess. To understand the Word of God requires a circumcision of the heart, which the natural man has not experienced. And that inability with the Word of God is especially true when it comes to the application of Scripture. There is a sense in which the interpretation of Scripture is a matter of the application of the laws of language. If you read the Bible rightly as you would read any other piece of written communication, you might arrive at a right intellectual understanding of what it means. But to understand what you have read in its relationship to God and in its relationship to mankind and in its relationship to your own soul, the natural man can't grasp it. You must be born again to have the eyes necessary to see what Scripture contains. Like everything else in the Christian life, you can't do anything without Christ. There is no sound Bible study without God. This has to do with fellowship. This has to do with the relationship. I think we can illustrate it in the human realm. When you have someone you know very well, maybe a family member, maybe a close friend, and they say something, and you know what they have just said is prone to misunderstanding. It's not that the words are needing to be changed. It's not that the words by themselves would not be clear. But you know what they mean by what they say because you know them. Someone who doesn't know them might misunderstand what they've said. The problem is not with the words, necessarily. The problem is with the knowledge of the person. Knowing the person, knowing the speaker, you are able to rightly interpret the meaning of the words because you know their character, you know their mindset. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees did not know the author of Scripture. They spent their lives studying the Word of God. They taught people the Word of God. They sought to govern the nation Israel with the Word of God. But they didn't understand what they were teaching. They were natural. They weren't spiritual men. And the result was they were blind guides. Matthew 23, 16, Woe to you blind guides. That's a mental picture, isn't it? A blind guide who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold of the temple that has made the gold sacred. Matthew 23, 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat, swallowing a camel. So to study the Bible without the knowledge of its author is to grope about in the context of brilliant light, but you can't grasp any of it. And with that blindness, there's a hardness. One unmistakable trait when you look at the religious leaders of the Jews on the pages of the gospel accounts, something you cannot miss is that they were hateful men. 
And as a result, they were harmful men. As Jesus said, you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. These are murderous men. Our text makes that clear. Murderous men. And it's no wonder because they belong to Satan, who was a murderer from the beginning. John 8, 44, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies... He speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You are the sons of a liar and a murderer. And you do not grasp the truth, and you do not love people. Hateful men, harmful men. And this is what you find in legalism. Legalism is compassionless. It boasts of its commitment to the truth, but its heart gives away the truth. It, it reveals the truth, that they're not really in the truth. For if they were in the truth, they would know the heart of God. But instead, they know the heart of a murderer. Judgmentalism is proud. It is confident of its superiority. Therefore, it is cold. And it is swift to condemn. So what our Lord taught about the spiritual ignorance of the Pharisees in verses 1-8, through eight, we now find illustrated in the very next verses on a Sabbath day in a synagogue. What do we see? Three main points tonight. We'll just mention them as we come to them. Number one, notice the heartless who use men. Heartless men who use men. Verse 9, and departing from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, a man was there whose hand was withered, and they questioned Jesus, saying, Is it lawful to heal on, on, on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? Jesus enters a synagogue. We're, we're told by Luke that it was on another day. Um, what we studied this morning was on a, a day separate from this day. It was on another day that he entered this synagogue. Luke 6, 5 says, And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. A few things I want you to note from the ninth verse. First of all, notice the location for this test. They questioned Jesus saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? So this is a test. Notice the location for it. It's in a synagogue. It's ironic, isn't it? This is a place, supposedly a place for worship. A place where the Word of God is studied, where the Word of God is applied. And yet, in this case, that's not what the synagogue is about in the, in, in the case of these Pharisees. Here are spiritual leaders, supposed spiritual leaders, and for them, the synagogue on this day is a place for schemes and strategies designed to entrap the Son of God. A place dedicated to the worship of God now, in the minds and hearts of these wicked men, these false spiritual leaders, the synagogue has become a place for wickedness. 
sad, isn't it, when the place of worship becomes a place where God is dishonored? That's been occurring throughout history due to the fact we live in this sinful world, due to the activities of Satan. It is not uncommon to our own day that places that are supposed to be places of worship become places for wickedness. We have the joy of watching young men leave this church and go and serve in other places. What is sad is when they go to those places full of zeal to simply love the people of God, shepherd the people of God, preach the Word of God, do what is right in the sight of God, and what they meet with is resistance. Places that are supposed to be about worship, but Jesus isn't welcome. Not the real Jesus, not the biblical Jesus. And the Word of God is not welcome. And faithful servants are not welcome. Right is not celebrated. Right is resisted. And so the place for this test is the synagogue. The focus for the test, verse 10, is a man who is present with a withered hand. And behold, a man was there whose hand was withered. And they, the Pharisees, questioned Jesus, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. These so-called spiritual leaders see a man in need and they don't care about his need. They see him as a tool, as an instrument for their wicked designs. He will become an opportunity to entrap Jesus. So they don't care about him, they use him. They're not truly concerned for the man no heart of compassion toward the man. And this is what legalists do in their view of humanity. They see other people as a means by which to exalt themselves. People to be used, people to be managed, and at the end of it all is something that benefits the leader. No true concern for the people. You see this in the book of Galatians. Paul is warning a church. I mean, he, he is incensed and he is concerned because they're being deceived and led astray. And he says of those who are influencing them, in Galatians 4.17, he says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. They show a great interest in you, but then they manipulate you. And what they're really after is not something that's good for you, but what's good for themselves. This is the heart of the legalist. He's cold. doesn't know any real, genuine, God-given concern for people. The location, a synagogue, a place of worship. The focus, a man who is in need, but they don't care about his need. He's going to be a tool. He's going to be an instrument. What is their motive? Well, the text tells us what their motive was. So that they might accuse him, that is Jesus. Accuse him of what? Accuse him of violating the Sabbath laws. In all of this, there are some amazing acknowledgments that... that Stand out from the text. It's amazing how you talk about blind guides. You talk about the blindness of sin. 
when, when sinners condemn themselves and they can't see it, they don't even know it, but maybe by what they say or by how they behave, they're telling the truth about themselves in a way that condemns themselves, but they're not aware of it. That, that's the case here. Notice some of the things they're acknowledging. First of all, they know that Christ's healing power is real. This is a guy with a withered hand. I mean, this is not some sort of a problem that, that could ever be explained in some psychosomatic way. It's not a guy with a headache. It's not a guy with a backache. It's something visible. It's a disfigurement. There's no denying it. Therefore, the only way Jesus could ever help this man is with a power so real that his hand could be transformed right in their presence, right before their very eyes. So when these wicked leaders see this man with a withered hand and say to themselves, I bet he's going to heal him. What are you acknowledging? You know Jesus has the power to heal him. The power is real. Second thing they have to be acknowledging is they know that Christ is able to heal at will. I mean, if, if Jesus' healing power was, was only on display in a hit-or-miss fashion, sometimes He could, sometimes He couldn't, they wouldn't look at this situation and say, hey, we're going to be able to entrap Him about the Sabbath. No, not only do they know that Jesus has the power to heal the man, they know that Jesus can heal the man if He wants to. If He wants to, He can. If He wants to, He will. You ever stop and, I mean, we've read these things so many times if we've been believers for any length of time, we can become numb to them. Can you imagine a situation where not only do we know that the healing power of God is present, but it's, it's on demand as it were. It's, it's if Jesus wants to do it, He can do it. How amazing that would be. But there's a third acknowledgement in the way they're thinking, they, they also acknowledge Christ's healing power is real. This is not a psychosomatic thing. This is a disfigurement. He can heal him if he wants to. Third, they are acknowledging that Jesus cares for people. Why would they think Jesus would have an interest in healing this man? I mean, according to the text, Jesus hasn't said anything yet. You're just putting two and two together. There's a guy with a withered hand and there's Jesus. So to think, I bet he's going to heal him on the Sabbath, what do you have to know? The power is real, it's on demand, and this is the very kind of situation where Jesus does this. We have heard enough about him, we have seen enough from him that we know this. When he meets with human need, he cares about that need. How many people have come to Jesus wanting help and he helped them? So that they not only know his power, they know his character. You want to talk about a knowledge that makes you accountable. Supernatural power, able to be exerted at will, and meets real human needs with compassion consistently. They also know something else. They question Jesus saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him, they already know the answer to their question. 
They already know the answer to their question. In other words, they already know that Jesus doesn't treat the Sabbath in accordance with their traditions. They've already seen Him do things on the Sabbath that they think to be a violation of the Sabbath. So they're not asking the question because they don't know the answer. Why are they asking the question? To build their case. To accumulate evidence. But what they don't understand is the, the, there is evidence being accumulated, but it's not against Jesus, it's against them. You know His power. You know the, the absolute unique exertion of that power, something, like, something the world has never seen before or since. You know His character, that He is good and kind and compassionate, cares for people. And you know His view of the Sabbath isn't yours. What are you missing? You're not going to school on the signs, are you? On another occasion, Jesus says, if you don't believe my message, at least believe the signs. Nicodemus was not like most of the other religious leaders. He was honest. In God's common grace, even when Nicodemus was still in darkness, he was evaluating the evidence with an honest mind. Which is why when he comes to Jesus in John 3, listen to what he acknowledges. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. At that moment, Nicodemus didn't have a clear vision of Jesus. He didn't recognize him as the Son of God, as the Messiah. But he knew this. We cannot explain this apart from God. So if you're going to school on the signs the way Nicodemus did, then who is more likely to have a right understanding of the Sabbath? The people doing the testing or the man who can heal blind people, lame people at will, on demand? Who, who is to be trusted? Who is to be believed? I mean, if you know your answer doesn't match Jesus, you should know that you are suspect. If he has a different view of the Sabbath than you, you have the Sabbath wrong. Not him. But they can't see this. They're blind. Blind guides of the blind. So we see heartless men who claim to be men of God. Their father is Satan. They are indifferent to human need. They make use of hurting people for their own wicked causes. They demonstrate their heartlessness. They demonstrate their lost condition. The heartless who use people. Secondly, we see verses 10 through 13, we see the healer who values men. The healer who values men. Verse 11, And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. They are condemned because of, of the way Jesus deals with this. These Pharisees are condemned. They're condemned 
not only by what they know about Jesus, but ignore. They know His power, the uniqueness of that power. They know His character. They know His knowledge, His, his view of the Sabbath. But they won't admit their own ignorance. They're also condemned by what they know about themselves and ignore. They asked Jesus a question they already knew the answer to. Jesus returns the favor. He now asks them a question he already knows the answer to. Verse 11, What man is there among you who has a sheep? And, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? Jesus knows the answer to that. Every single one of you would not allow your sheep to perish just because it fell into a pit on the Sabbath day. You would take hold of it. You would lift it out. And by your, the way you're treating the Sabbath, that would be work, wouldn't it? He not only asks a question he already knows the answer to, and they know the answer to, he also then states a conclusion that they have no answer for. Verse 12, how much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? If you would help a sheep, won't you help a man? So then, and then he gets to the very heart of what they miss about the Sabbath restrictions anyway. He says, so then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Well, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. There they have their answer. Mark tells us that when Jesus asked this, they refused to answer him. Mark 3, verse 1, again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, right? Heartless people. And said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This, by the way, was a practice of the religious leaders of the Jews. When, when, they, when they questioned Jesus, tried to entrap him, and then with his divine wisdom, he returned answers that exposed them. The way they would deal with it is just stop talking. He would ask them questions. They wouldn't answer it. You see this later in Matthew twenty-two thirty-four. 34. Here's another example of it. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Let's have a huddle. He's too wise for the Sadducees, but he's not too wise for us, right? Huddle up here. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? 
saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. I want you to mark this down in your mind. Not admitting that you're guilty will never make you innocent. These men are being exposed by the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have a sheep, won't you rescue it on the Sabbath? They would. He knows they would. They know he knows they would. Isn't a man more valuable than a sheep? They won't answer him. Because as sinners are prone to do, we imagine if we don't admit it, it's not real. If I don't, if I don't confess my own guilt, I'm not guilty. Instead of humbling oneself before the Lord, instead of walking in this situation in the fear of God and falling on your knees and saying, we have it wrong. We see your power. We see the unique ability you have to exert it. We know your care for people. We see the signs. We've had it wrong. And every question we ask, it exposes us, our heartlessness, our lack of salvation instead of falling on their knees and asking for mercy. They stubbornly continue in their sin, imagining that they can manipulate through silence and somehow emerge from the situation saving face because I never admitted I was guilty. Well, then Jesus does something in verse 13. He settles the issue with a miracle. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. That answers their question, doesn't it? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? I mean, does it violate the will of God? Is God not pleased if you heal someone on the Sabbath? Well, a healing just occurred. The man is well. And again, we underestimate this in our mind. A man with a hand that would not function in a moment, in an instant, was whole. You've got to ask, don't you, by whose power did that happen? And if it is the power of God, you have your answer about the Sabbath. If God is pleased to heal the man, then apparently it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath which means you've been in the wrong and Jesus has been in the right. And if you ever needed evidence of the blindness of these people, I want you just to let it sink in that the miraculous had become so commonplace with Jesus that people expected it. You and I have never seen a miracle like that in all of our life. You have never seen a blind man given his sight with a word. You've never seen a child who has died be raised from the dead. You've never seen a man who's been in the tomb four days so that by this time his body has decayed and Jesus calls his name and he comes out and they unwrap him and he's, he's alive. You've never seen a limb shriveled, disfigured because of of disuse, and in a moment it's whole. 
they have seen this now with Jesus so many times that they, they see a man with a need in a synagogue and they see him and they go, he's going to do it. And when he does it, this will be more evidence that he violates the Sabbath. Pastor Philip read it in our scripture reading. Can you imagine a man lame from birth and he's healed and he's walking home with his pallet and what comes to your mind is he's carrying a pallet. What blindness. They condemn themselves. The heartless with only one thought toward people, how can I use them for myself? The healer who truly cares for people, who, who, who in, he confronts these Pharisees with the knowledge, man is made in the image of God. He's not a sheep. He has more value than a sheep. Jesus values people. Even since the fall, even in their sinful condition, men have value to God. How do you respond to this? How do you respond to such a miracle? To, to this answer to your question. The third thing we see, last thing, the, the hellish who seek to destroy the Son of Man. The heartless are hellish. They reveal the murderous nature of their father. Because the way they respond to this, verse 14, is they leave and they have a meeting. Pharisees took counsel. And their meeting was about how to destroy Jesus. That's your response to an answer that you, you can't dispute. He asks you publicly, which is more valuable, a sheep or a man? You won't even give him an answer because you know you'll condemn yourself. His answer condemns you. His deed condemns you. His power condemns you. His love condemns you. And your response is, we've got to kill him. They hate him. They hate him because he's good. They hate him because he's God and they're God-haters. He exposes them. And what makes this especially sad is these very men, if they would humble themselves and repent, Jesus would receive them and save them. Who is the Lord Jesus? He is the one who's willing to forgive his blasphemers. Luke 12.10 says, And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. We don't have time to deal with all of that. I would just say that what he's talking about with respect to the Holy Spirit involves a settled condition in sin and judgment. But there have been many, many people, many, many people who blaspheme Jesus who later are saved by Jesus. This is the Lord. So let me ask you as we finish tonight, what will you do with the Jesus who exposes you? Maybe there's somebody here me tonight that you are not a Christian. You know you're not a Christian. You'll tell others that you're not a Christian. You've been exposed to the gospel. You've heard about Jesus. Maybe at times you've exercised strategic silence when you know you would just condemn yourself, when you know you don't have the answers. You know your life reveals the effects of sin. You know the gospel's true intellectually. But you, you refuse to bow the knee 
And again and again and again, Jesus and the gospel, they expose you. What will you do with the Jesus who exposes you? Will you humble yourself? Will you run to Him? Will you embrace Him? Will you embrace His mercy and kindness and forgiveness and love? Or will you stubbornly go on in your sin? What will you do with your objections that keep being exposed as foolishness? Jesus didn't hesitate, did He? We read it earlier to say to, to men like this, you fools. You're a fool. And if we had been honest with ourselves in our lost condition, there were many times when our, our argumentation, our, our thought processes, as we went on in our sin, it, it was just foolishness. So when your foolishness is exposed as foolishness, you, you've got these heady objections, right? These these arguments from science or these arguments from this or that as to why you're not a Christian. But your life is falling apart. And the world is falling apart. And everything the Bible says about mankind is proven true again and again and again. Will you throw away your foolish objections? Will you just bow the knee? What will you do with the one who is so kind, so gracious, he's willing to forgive blasphemers against himself? He could send you to hell in a moment and not owe you an apology, but He's willing to forgive you with a payment that was His own, that He offered Himself willingly. The Father pleased to crush His own Son, His Son laying down His life. It wasn't taken from Him. He gave His life for sinners. Jesus, the friend of sinners. What will you do when you blasphemed Him most of your life? But now you recognize you're lost. You need Him. He'll receive you. Will, you. will you run to Him? And when you see the Son of God who's the Son of love, who really cared when He met with human need, how does it inform your own view of people? Wouldn't it be tragic if your shepherd knows a heart of compassion but His disciples know a heart that's cold. Wouldn't he, be, wouldn't he be sad if He says a man's more valuable than a sheep, but you act like a sheep's more valuable than a man? Do you listen to your Lord? you watch His life on the pages of the Gospel accounts? And do you say, not only do I see something about Him, I see something about my view of others. Lord, help me to see people through the eyes of my Savior. Help me see people through the eyes of my Savior. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? He is the Lord of glory. He is the Savior of the world. He cares for people. And where you have true religion, you value people. You value their souls. Lord, help us to see people through the eyes of Christ and to point people to the only Savior given to men, the Lord Jesus Christ. The church would say, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for these passages in Matthew that are bringing us face to face every week with not only our Lord, but with us, with sinful humanity. And for some of us, Lord, it's bringing us face to face with lostness. For every child of God in this room and everyone hearing me, it brings us face to face with what kind of grace and mercy has been extended to us.
For in our natural condition, we would not, we could not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are spiritually appraised. We didn't have the equipment. And in your grace and mercy to us, Lord, you opened our hearts and you granted us new birth. And you gave us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart made of flesh that cared. Lord, that was your work that brought us to your Son. You had mercy upon us and forgave all of our sins and given us the good news for the world and entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. Lord, may we see this world through the eyes of the one who had mercy on us and may we have mercy on others. With humble hearts, not proud hearts, may we serve as missionaries to this world. And even within the realm of the church, Lord, may we see each other with the eyes of redemption, care enough about each other to love each other in every situation for your glory and for the good of souls. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.